0: so we set up a pilot program to figure out, all right, how would we do this differently? And we looked at the cases that were most likely to be dismissed. And we put a prosecutor to to specifically focus on how do we identify bad cases. And immediately we saw the number of cases dismissed going up and we saw it happening so much faster. And so from that pilot, we're now expanding it to take on more police departments and more charges so that these cases that don't belong in the system get removed.
1: Welcome to episode 39 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized, transformational social impact. Today's episode features Jared Fishman. He's an attorney on a mission to improve the world. Jared found his calling when he became a civil rights prosecutor for the DOJ and has since founded Justice Innovation Lab, Where he and his team provide data-informed, evidence-based analysis to reduce incarceration and racial disparities and improve effectiveness and fairness of criminal justice systems. Jared and I discuss his career journey through the Middle East, law school, becoming a civil rights attorney, being in a dad garage band, and much more. Worth noting, we had a few technical difficulties with this recording, so the video quality isn't great, and there's a little bit of extra background noise, but it shouldn't affect the listening experience much. Here is Jared Fishman on People Are The Answer. Jared, thanks for joining me on People Are The Answer.
0: Thanks for having me, Jeffrey.
1: Glad to have you, absolutely. And would love if you could just start off by telling the audience who you are, you know, where you're based and what your current role is.
0: Sure, my name is Jared Fishman. I'm the founder and executive director of Justice Innovation Lab. I spent 14 years of my career at the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division handling civil rights cases around the, the country. Uh, I'm based out of Washington, D.C., uh, though I spend a lot of time in rural Canada, and uh, I'm excited on, on talking today.
1: Great. Thank you for sharing that. And in general, what would you say motivates you?
0: There's a lot of problems in our world, and I think I've been quite lucky and fortunate in my life to, to have an opportunity to do something about it. And so as I've traveled around the country with, with the Justice Department and now with Justice Innovation Lab, What is so clear to me is that our criminal justice system is broken, uh, but the upside is there are ways to fix it. Uh, And so what motivates me is bringing together the people who are dedicated to fixing these problems and solving these problems. I think there's never been a better moment.
1: Absolutely. And I can certainly appreciate that perspective. And um, where, where did you grow up and what was it like there?
0: I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I spent the first 15 years of my life primarily in Jewish schools. So I had a very homogenous bubble of people that I spent my time with. Notwithstanding that, um, a big part of my, my Jewish education was the concept of tikkun olam, that the world is broken and that we have to fix it. And so I think that very much shaped the way that I viewed the world as I moved through it. Now, of course in those early days that world was pretty narrow but as I went to a public high school in Atlanta Georgia and became exposed to to racial inequities to new communities of people who were new immigrants in our country and the challenges that they faced and then ultimately spent the early part of my career in conflict zones and post conflict zones watching uh, societies either as they collapsed or as they tried to rebuild after a collapse I realized this world is huge it is broken and we need more people fighting
1: definitely the case and uh great to hear you bring up sakuna Lam. that's certainly something that's very important to me and my family and something that we talk a lot about and um it's interesting to hear you know that you sort of got into high school and saw open your eyes a little bit to more of the world and what was going on
0: For sure. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've, I feel I've been most fortunate is just the exposure to so many different types of people in different places with different challenges. Um, And to whether I'm dropping into a prison and speaking with people who who are currently incarcerated or people who've been victimized by crime or people living in different countries in the world, it gives. It, it's given me a lot of insight uh, into how the world works and, and, and how we yeah. can try to fix it. And
1: so you mentioned going to high school and then uh, you went to Penn. I did. And how was that experience for you?
0: Uh, I had a great experience uh, at Penn, um, made great friends, got exposed to a lot of new ideas, uh, enjoyed deep learning. I was a Middle Eastern Studies major, uh, was one of my two majors in, in college. And for me, again, it started with this, uh, with an idea of, I'd spent time in Israel. I wanted to do work on the Middle East, but I had a really limited idea of what that meant. I didn't know anything about Islam. I didn't know a whole lot of Arabs. Um, but a part of that study, uh, my my advisor said, you should you should go out and, and study abroad. And so I, I studied abroad in Morocco, which was a transformative experience as I worked and learned with people who previously I had felt were my enemies. Um, and begin to have that human connection with people to made me realize, all right, this, there's more, there's more to some of these stories than I previously. Yeah,
1: that's, that's really interesting to hear how you went about that. It's, um, that's awesome that you went to Morocco. And I think the conflict in the Middle East is so much more complicated than so many people, especially in the U S understand. So, I'm sure that gave you a whole new perspective.
0: Well, from that point on, I really wanted to dedicate my work to working towards peace in the Middle East. And so I started working with an organization called Seeds of Peace that brought together teenagers from conflict zones. So it brought together Israelis and Palestinians and uh, people throughout the Arab world, people from the Balkans, from Cyprus. And that was where I first interacted with people who had been impacted by war and violence. And... Definitely going into that experience, I assumed there would be a lot of hatred and mistrust between those communities, which there were, um, but at the same time, watching people have those same experiences that I had had in Morocco, the, the humanization of the other, being able to, to do activities and see people as individuals, being able to make friends from the other side. Um, once we get to that point, once we begin to see our enemies um, as humans, uh, it makes it a lot easier to work together to solving these yeah. problems. And so it transformed how I saw um, possibility, um, even, even with some of the most complicated problems that exist.
1: Yeah, I, that's really cool to hear. I think that people make a lot of assumptions about that situation, about humans in general that are on, quote, the other side. But in reality, we have a lot more in common with each other than we, we do differences.
0: For sure. I mean, everyone wants to live in a safe community. Everyone wants their children to have opportunities. Everyone wants to be able to go about their business and experience and realize their biggest hopes and dreams. That to me is, is proven true regardless of where I've been. But the reality is People, there's so many barriers to, uh, to accomplishing that. And um, oftentimes those barriers then get, get used as a wedge mm-hmm. to put people against When them. you were working
1: at Seeds of Peace, did you already know that you wanted to go to law school? Is that something that came up while you were there?
0: I always thought that I would go to law school, though. I didn't really know why or what I wanted to do. Um, But after I worked at the summer program for Seeds of Peace and I graduated high school and my parents said, what are you ever going to do with a Middle East Studies degree? Who's going to hire you? Uh, And they said, hey, we'd like to hire you to go live in the Middle East and work with teenagers uh, as a part of the year round program. For me, uh, it, was, it was a great dream. So I always thought in the back of my head that I would, I would probably go to law school, but after I graduated, I moved to Jerusalem where I helped run the center. And we brought together Israelis and Palestinians, and we did work in Egypt, and we did work in the Balkans. And um, at that point, it was really about building something new, about taking the possibility and the energy from young people and translating that into real change in their communities. But while I was living in Jerusalem at my year-long anniversary there, uh, the second intifada broke out. And so the peace process uh, ended, and all of a sudden there was daily conflict. Kids that I worked with were having their friends killed, uh, their schools bombed. The conflict was, was so profound, it just prohibited us from being able to bring people together. We used to do work in schools. We used to bring Israelis to Palestinian homes, Palestinians to Israelis homes, um, refugee camps, uh, cross border travel. And then all of a sudden, almost overnight, all of that became impossible. And what it really demonstrated to me is, is how fragile life can be, how fragile peace process is, how fragile um, the advances that we can have as a society, and how hard it is once those things start to unravel to put it yeah. back together. And that was for sure when I knew, all right, my, my ability to help now has been drastically curtailed, but I wanna to go to law school and gain those skills to help communities rebuild after war. Because we have to, the rule of law, the, the, the systems and structures that, that keep our society safe we need those um, if we're going to prevent violence, if we're going to create opportunity. And that was my real goal in going to law school, was learning how do we use laws and legal systems to make communities stronger. I always thought I'd go back to the Middle East. I, I thought the conflict there was only going to last for two or three years, obviously. Um, now, looking at it 22 years later, it feels particularly head-naive. Um, but nonetheless, those skills and my desire to do work in, in conflict zones and post-conflict zones undoubtedly shape the way I think about problems and systems. Yeah, I'm today. sure that was
1: absolutely invaluable experience and um, took that with you into law school at George Washington. And how was uh, the law school experience for you?
0: Well, for me, for me, I think there, there, there's two ways of learning, right? There's there's the, the learning by reading books and by philosophizing about arcane topics. And for some people, that's great. And that really works for them. For me, I have always enjoyed learning by doing things. I wanted my learning to be focused to doing something right. and hopefully doing something good for the world. So in my in my third year, I did a lot of clinical work where... Uh, I was taking on real cases with professors who profoundly changed my way of understanding how do we advocate on behalf of people, how do we take the law and really use it to its best and most practical effects for making lives people better and and helping people with their problems. So by that point, I began enjoying law school a little bit more.
1: Got it. That that makes sense. And um, from law school, you went into the State Department?
0: Yeah, I got hired as a presidential management fellow, which is a way to enter the federal government uh, coming out of grad school. And I got my dream job. The State Department had an office that was doing work building legal systems in post-war countries. And almost immediately after getting there, they shipped me off to Kosovo, where I worked with police officers and prosecutors who were working to rebuild their legal system. Wow, what
1: that must have been a remarkable experience what was it like there
0: I mean there's nothing quite like getting off a plane and be given a bulletproof armored vehicle and said go out and figure out what's happening with policing Uh, it was a remarkable amount of responsibility thrown uh, into the hands of a recent graduate but like many things that I've done in life I just approached it with curiosity tried to find as many different people and voices that were talking about these issues. So I, I traveled uh, every province in Kosovo I met. Uh, at the time, uh, Kosovo was in a period of transition. The UN still was the governing, um, was the primary government governing structure and had a massive police force of which the US contributed, I think at that time, about 400 police officers. So there was a UN system of policing. And at the same time, the US had been funding heavily into the Kosovo police school I would travel around the country and and meet with, with Kosovo police officers, meet with the, the head of the UN police force. I was doing a lot of work with the prosecutors in Kosovo and was really fascinated by the, the struggles to, to rebuild a new system, to write new laws, to write a new constitution, to build new institutions. And so at that time, uh, the police force in Kosovo, the UN police force was drawing down as the as the local police force was, was growing. And so it was a period of transition from the internationals to the locals and the various challenges that were associated with that. But during the course of my work there, I worked with a prosecutor who was uh, an AUSA, a federal prosecutor in Chicago, who was one of my partners on the ground there. And he was very interested in my youthful idealism and my desire to work on these system issues. And he said, listen, if you wanna be effective, if you wanna go out and make a change on these systems, you should go work in the criminal justice system for a while. Mm. You're a smart guy, you've you've studied about this a lot, but really what you need to do is go in and work in that system for a while, go be a prosecutor. Mm. And for me, I always thought, thought of myself as a civil rights guy. There was, there was no way in my mind that I would ever go be a prosecutor. I couldn't imagine, working a job where the end game was to send people to prison. Yeah, And so I told him, I said, listen, I, I can't, I can't do it. If I'm going to go do this, I want to go be a civil rights lawyer. I'm going to go do defense work. And he said, if you care about civil rights, then you absolutely have to be a prosecutor because in our system, they're the ones who have the most power. Hmm. They're the ones who can ensure whether or not our system operates fairly effectively. And At the time, this was 2005, I think, uh, it was a pretty novel concept. I think there's been a lot of shift in thinking on justice reform issues and the power of prosecutors to change our system recently. But back in 2005, this was a pretty novel concept. And because of the way I had been hired into the State Department, I was able to do a detail to the US Attorney's Office in DC. And so from Kosovo, I went to operating in the justice system in Washington, DC where I handled, uh, domestic violence cases and sex crime cases. Wow. And almost immediately after becoming a probably, I had never taken trial ad. I had never thought that I would be a real lawyer, <laughs> if you will. Um, that wasn't what I wanted to do, but now all of a sudden I'm in court, handling real cases with real victims on a daily basis. And on the one hand, I really loved being in court. I loved trying cases. It turned out I was pretty good at it, but, On top of that, I also really saw how much harm is created on a day in and day basis by our justice system, particularly um, to to lower income black and brown people. Almost everyone I saw in court was black or brown. And I saw people being moved through this system that clearly was not doing anyone. It wasn't serving the victims. It wasn't serving defendants. It certainly wasn't making communities any safer. And so, but I also liked being in court, I liked being a prosecutor, so I was, I, I was torn. Do I continue working in the system that I think is so flawed um, or not? And, and around that same time, uh, I started talking to people at the Civil Rights Division who said, well, we're looking to hire some people to go investigate police misconduct. Um, I'm curious though, before we dig too deeply into that, your time
1: as a US attorney sort of seeing the people that were coming through the system, that must have just been really eye-opening to you, um, and kind of, I imagine, added
0: to your motivation to create change. For sure, because you know we think, and part of the reason why I liked criminal law, and I think why so many people who are not lawyers find criminal law interesting, and why Law and Order does so well, is is criminal law speaks to, you know, the heart of our own morality, right? Criminal law is supposed to establish the norms of our morality and the way we want to live as a society. And so when you when you look at that and say, all right, why do we punish people? Who do we punish? And what, what utilitarian goals are those serving? That was always a really interesting question to me. And I think it's what draws people to who do we hold accountable? How do we hold them accountable? And ultimately, when do we impose the harshest sanctions that our government can do taking people's liberty and sometimes even taking their lives? And when you drop into the system, and that's your goal, right? when you when you learn about the ideals of, of criminal law, of constitutional law, and now all of a sudden you're watching people being warehoused in that system, people being prosecuted for things that certainly I knew were happening in my own community, but were not being prosecuted. And right? if you look at drug use among, among black and white people, most studies will show that there's relatively equal usage. Uh, among races, Mm -hmm. and when you look at who's actually being prosecuted, who is being held, it is almost, at least in Washington, D.C., it was almost all black and brown people, same with domestic violence, same with a lot of these crimes, and so to me, that really signaled there is a much bigger problem going on, and as a prosecutor, particularly of a high-volume docket, the police came, they brought the case. I had rarely had an opportunity to assess its merits accurately, to really dig in to understand what was causing some of the crime. And I was just yet another participant in that conveyor belt of justice, doing the best I could. My goal was justice. My goal was trying to serve our community, make it safer, serve the victims, who, who uh, survivors who were in that system. That's what I wanted to do. And yet I looked at the system and how people were being processed and moved through and that clearly was not happening. We were not doing justice on a daily basis.
1: Yeah. That that's got to be tough to realize and you know, trying to do your best but the system was handing you cases that weren't necessarily fair and I, I know for myself and in getting involved in drug policy and criminal justice that was cer- certainly one of the things that opened my eyes initially was what you mentioned of, you know, for instance, the rate of drug uses among races is very similar but the the rate of uh convictions and um of charges is so much so extreme to the minorities and it's just sickening
0: well there's just an unequal enforcement of our laws there's an unequal approach to how we try to tackle crime and i think the war on drugs beginning in the 70s through the present was was just we're we're seeing so many consequences that run counter to its original goals Um, certainly there were a lot of people who pushed original drug policy, who were using it as a wedge to, to, politically, we're using it as a way to, to increase the incarceration of black and brown people. But what's happened over time is, is we've moved to this race neutral approach that we're, we're just trying to enforce the law. We're just trying to have stable communities. Um, and that makes it a lot easier to, to obscure what's really happening in enforcement in our country.
1: I appreciate your efforts to sort of bring light to that. And, um, you know, though, then after your time um, as a U.S. attorney, you became a civil rights prosecutor and um, would love to hear more about that, the the type of cases you worked on. I believe you're in that
0: role for nearly 14 years. Is that correct? I did. I spent fourteen years in the Justice Department. It was the kind of job when I took it because there was so much travel involved that most most lawyers in that section burnt out after three years. It was just it was just too grueling. Wow. And somehow I figured I would be one of them and then fourteen years later <laughs> I was still there.
1: So you must have uh, really enjoyed so the work or, or been passionate about the work.
0: It was interesting and every case was interesting. Um, because it was the type of criminal law that I did spend think spoke to our morals as a society and what we stood for as a community. The, the criminal section of the civil rights division is responsible for enforcing America's criminal civil rights laws. And typically that falls into three categories, hate crimes, so bias motivated crimes where people are targeted because of their race or their ethnicity or their religion or, or their sexual orientation human trafficking, um, both in terms wow. of sex trafficking, and labor trafficking, where people are compelled to work or coerced to work against their will. Uh, and then really what was the bread and butter of, of our section was what we call color of law cases, cases against people empowered by the law um, over people's lives and, and rights. And so that tended to fall into cases of police abuse, um, cases where federal officers had, had shot and killed people corrections officers who who deprive people of constitutional rights. And so I spent a lot of time traveling around the country, spending time in America's prisons, spending time looking at police misconduct cases around the country, and really showing up in communities after a massive civil rights violation have occurred, um, pitting law enforcement against the community. And so I handled cases from Louisiana and Florida and Georgia and North Carolina through to Kansas, all the way to California. And I even had a few cases in US territories in Guam and Saipan. Wow, sounds
1: like you really got to see sort of the breadth of, of what's out there in this space. And um, I can only imagine the types of things that you saw and they must've had, a tremendous lasting impact to see some of these things that were going on, these incredible injustices.
0: Absolutely. And they're everywhere. And they're in so many different facets of life. You
1: You you saw a lot of incredible injustices, uh, you know, throughout your your 14 years working on these uh, civil rights cases. Um, Are there any particular examples that, that you could give us that of cases that really stuck with you?
0: I think they all stuck with me. So it's, I think one of the things about, you know, I was not in a high volume caseload. We were, I had fewer cases that we worked really deeply for a long time. And so I think they all really stuck with me because of the human impact. But just to give you a a sampling of some of the things that I did over the years, uh, I spent a lot of time in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, Uh, after that storm Uh, There were a number of allegations of police misconduct, police officers uh, who killed people without justification. So I investigated uh, the murder of a man named Henry Glover, whose body was burned by police officers in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and was covered up for uh, about four years until we opened an investigation and began investigating that. That was probably the case that most profoundly shaped how I understood what was happening in the criminal uh, legal system and the impact it can have on communities and really how fragile our country is. Uh, Hurricane Katrina did not create a lot of the harms that we saw in its aftermath. It did not create right. the police going awry. It just created an opportunity for fissures already existed to just be exacerbated to, 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 some, of, to some of the worst things that we've seen. So I spent a lot of time working um, homicides by police officers in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And the, hmm. the story about Henry Glover, I'm currently working uh, on a book about that. So that's that's the, the case that gets stuck with me the most and that I most want to talk about, because even though it's now 17 years after Henry Glover was murdered, it still reverberates um, both personally in my life yeah. um, and I think in the community down there. So that's, that's an example of a case that had a profound impact. Uh, I worked on the shooting of a man named Walter Scott down in Charleston, South Carolina. I yeah. think that was the case that really helped me realize that I had reached the end of my prosecutorial career. Through a lot of civil rights cases, whether it be hate crimes or police misconduct or human trafficking, we won some, we lost plenty. Um, when you're fighting on behalf of marginalized communities and fighting to vindicate the rights of people who are hurt by our law enforcement, you lose a lot. And Walter Scott was a case where he was he was shot by a North Charleston police officer. It was captured on video. In my mind, when I first saw that video, it was the clearest case of police uh, of a bad police shooting that I'd ever seen. Um, and I'd investigated, plenty, but I'd never seen a video that was so clear. But the solicitor in South Carolina investigated that case had asked us to assist we assisted them they try as a state murder case got a hung jury and then you know i led the team that came in in, in its aftermath to try to see whether or not we could get justice and in the end um, through our investigation and through our pre-trial strategy michael slager pled guilty and was sentenced to 20 years for murder uh, of walter scott which in some ways was the most clear victory that i had ever achieved it was un- unambiguous mm. uh the the Murder was called what it was, it was a murder. He was held accountable. Yeah. And yet for me, as I watched that case, I began to think, was this gonna be like those other victories that were temporarily moved the ball maybe a little bit, but but nothing really is going to change. And, and that's really, I think what got me the most frustrated was that even after our victories, these rare victories, I wasn't seeing the kind of change needed to happen to prevent deaths like this in the future. Police homicides, unjustified killings—those are just um, symptoms of much deeper problems. And until okay. we begin to address those deeper problems, we're going to continue to see people killed unjustifiably. We're going to continue to lose constitutional rights. We're going to continue um, abridged. We're going to continue to see these adverse outcomes that we don't want in our communities. And so. That's why i created justice innovation lab was to begin to tackle some of these systemic structures and help the people who wanted to fix them actually fix them
1: yeah that that makes sense sort of that feeling that yes you you did well in that case but could it really affect longer term wider impact um and that is what led you to leave that position just sort of re- realizing that there were ways to make bigger change
0: yeah i wanted more <laughs> i wanted I wanted to make more change. I saw opportunities yeah. after that case. I had a lot of conversations with solicitor Wilson, the chief prosecutor down in Charleston, and she was trying to collect data. We were both learning a little bit about, about data and about systems and structures of, 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 of racial bias. And she, she wanted to know, like, can we use this data to figure out if we're being fair? And I thought was one of the most profound questions I'd ever heard anyone in law uh, in in law enforcement asking, and it hadn't really been done. No one was asking that. Are we being fair? And how would we measure it? Yeah. And if we're not being fair, how do we fix it?
1: We were discussing, you know, whether or not we're being fair, how to potentially fix that, what data could do to to help us with that, and. Um, is that what took you to your next stop? Um, is, is it the Beek Center for Social Impact and Innovation?
0: Yeah, well, I started Justice Innovation Lab and then also was a fellow at the Beck Center around the same time as I was getting Got it. started up. So um, they they helped me in my early days as a place to land. And as I was as I was jumping off with Justice Innovation Lab.
1: Um, you also are. a. A senior fellow at the the Massive Data Institute at Georgetown and a, and a law professor at Georgetown. In addition to your work at Justice Innovation Lab,
0: yeah, my law works at George Washington University, um, my, my oh, alma me. mater. So I do some work at Georgetown. I do some work at at, at Gito.
1: Yeah, let's let's dig in on on Justice Innovation Lab. I mean, that is is how we met. Was my sort of work in criminal justice and finding you in Justice Innovation Lab. Can you explain to our audience, to our audience what it is?
0: Sure, Justice Innovation helps communities redesign their justice system to be more effective, efficient, and fair. At the heart of what we do is we use a data-informed approach that's deeply rooted in community values and collaboration mm-hmm. to identify existing inequities in a justice system and then figure out how to best fix it. The reality is there is so much low-hanging fruit in the justice reform space but it is incredibly hard to bring people together for change. But we use data to help ferret out where some of those inequities are and to understand what are the root causes uh, and how that ties into systemic choices. And then to work on systems thinking and design thinking, we we look at where are the levers that currently exist that we can influence to begin to reverse some of the negative changes that we see. I mean, I
1: really appreciate your focus on data. I think that it, you know, it's hard to argue against data, you know, when you've got real solid data that was collected from the system. Um, I think that's really important to impacting change.
0: Um,
1: what, so are you yeah,
0: analyzing? I think, I think it, well, I was gonna say a data, data-informed data approach allows us to do two things. One is it helps us to really identify and ferret out root causes of some of the harm, but it also allows us to talk about it's happening in a different way. So often when people talk about harms in the criminal justice system, they find uh, an individual story which may or may not be representative of, of the broader system. What the data allows us to do is to step back because in any individual case, I have seen people justify their actions good or bad it's it's you can always justify those choices because cases are complex and individual situations are complex what data allows us to do is back up to a systems level and say all right what is happening most of the time because what we want to understand is is where are those injustices that are happening most of the time a lot of times it has to it happens in in how processes exist how systems exist how choices are made and so it allows us to look at choices and say, right, is this what we actually want to be happening? Because if it's not, then we have to fix it. And it allows us to tell that story a little more differently.
1: I completely understand what you said about the individual stories. And for me, the power in creating change, especially in criminal justice is both having some of those unique personal stories that ties people to the human element and the fact that these are humans going through the system. uh, But then the data to back up why that story is representative of the whole
0: absolutely i mean we are very mindful of the humans at the at the heart of this and i think one of the critique of data-driven reform is often that um it's not pushing people forward because it lacks that human element we try to build the two things together we start our process by looking at the data to understand what is the relative health of an existing system so we look at things like where are there disparities in arrest rates or incarceration rates we look at how long is it taking a case to achieve resolution, or we look at how many times are cases dismissed from the system insufficient evidence. These are real indicators of whether or not the system is working as it's supposed to work. Yeah. Uh, and then, as we as we have our findings, as we with the people who have the ability to influence change, we make sure to bring in impacted voices in the community. One of I think people's favorite sessions when we do workshops in a particular community is bringing in people who have been incarcerated, bringing in people who have been uh, victimized and, and, and a part of the system and explaining how some of these data points that we talk about, things like time to disposition, things about mandatory minimums and the impact that that has and really explaining the human impact to prosecutors, to police officers so that they have a different perspective on the impact of some of their decisions. Often when you're operating in a high volume criminal justice, you don't understand whether or not the decision you made was bad, even if you want it to be good, even if you are coming at it for all the right reasons. I used to make hundreds of decisions every day when I was a prosecutor. And the thing that frustrated me the most was I never got feedback as to whether or not I made a good or a bad decision. And so without feedback, we got to keep doing the same thing, and when we're doing something that is leading to suboptimal results, we need to stop that. Yeah, because we want to be have better results for our
1: communities. Absolutely, and you, and you talked about being told before you went into the position, and then learning as you were a prosecutor just how much power the prosecutors have, and to think that you weren't getting any true feedback on whether or not you were doing the right thing is is kind of scary and. Now, for you to be coming in and putting this data together, synthesizing this data, um, has that had direct impact on prosecutors yet? And you know, what do you foresee for that in the future?
0: Absolutely. I mean, after one of our workshops, we watched dismissals of the cases increase by forty-seven percent. Wow. Small sample size, but this is without policy changes. This is with people sitting down, understanding a little bit about the data, understanding um, some of the impact that they have uh, on their community. And so that was just changing individual behavior of prosecutors in a small jurisdiction like Charleston. And and when we look at the more systemic efforts, so the the the, the backlog that's been exacerbated by the global pandemic, courts have been shut down most jurisdictions for, for 12 to 18 months. And so, the system stopped. Now people didn't stop getting arrested and entering the system, but we stopped resolving cases. We stopped being able to dismiss cases. We stopped being able to plea out cases and try cases. And so what that did was create an even bigger slowdown of our justice system. What we, what we saw in Charleston was, was that it's going to take close to six years to resolve an average case moving forward. And you cannot have a functioning justice system with that happening. As we see upticks in violence, a lot of people pointing the finger at what is causing these upticks in violence and is this a response to to softer enforcement? Like one of the biggest contributors in mind is a failure of the system because it cannot do what it's supposed to do. And it cannot do what it's supposed to do is because it's bogged down with cases that shouldn't be there in the place. And and where I think the real opportunity is right now is you talk to prosecutors, you talk to police officers, they get it. So much of what they've been asked to do shouldn't be there in the first place. The fact that 30 to 50 percent of people incarcerated have some diagnosable or easily diagnosable mental health problem. Like going back to my original point about our criminal justice supposed supposed to fit some moral judgment on what is right and wrong we see so much mental health problems being diverted to the justice system. We see so much of poverty and homelessness being diverted to the justice system. We see so much of addiction being diverted to the justice system. We are not the people who should be solving these problems. We cannot do it effectively and we cannot do it cost um, effectively and it's really not what our system is set up for. And so a lot of what is happening is helping prosecutors understand that so that they can make different choices to really prioritize the things that they can do something about, which is be more thoughtful about how we approach violent crime in our communities and make sure that the crimes and the laws that we are enforcing serve our communities in the ways that we want.
1: You mentioned your work in Charleston, just more about sort of when you went in there, what your goals were, how that's going, and, and is this something you're trying to do in other markets as well?
0: Sure. Well, we started there and it was our pilot project. And again, you know, I think I think for both the solicitor and I was we were going to run some numbers, find some problems and make things happen. Um, It's a little bit more complicated than that, I think, as both of us as both of us learned in that process. So our process is multifaceted, right? So a big part first is you got to get data. We get the data from case management systems. Most offices, whether it's a prosecutor's office, police department, courthouses, they are keeping data on their visions. So the first part is, is getting it and then making sure that it's accurate because all data tends to be input by other human beings and their accuracy may or may not be very good depending on what's in it for them. So we start by looking at those data, cleaning it and trying to see, all right, what do we think we can, can accurately make commentary on? Then we begin to, to analyze those key metrics that I would mentioned earlier that diagnose whether or not a system is is, is operating healthily. And then we work with them to say, all right, what are your values as a community? What do you care about? And it doesn't really matter to me what people say their key value is because if you care about fairness or you care about public safety or you care about efficiencies, any metrics that a jurisdiction chooses, they are failing at. And they are failing at it because our system flawed at every different level. Yeah. but. But what we found is that most offices want to add to public safety and they want to be fair. Those, those seem to be universal values that I've encountered in the offices that we work with. And so that's, that's the first step is understanding what do you care about in terms of what are your objectives and what are you trying to achieve? And then we work with them to say, all right, well, how, does, how, does, how would you measure success? What would those numbers look like if you were doing your job well? And they yeah. choose the numbers. And then we run the numbers and show them where they're failing. Um, And then we can look at the systems and structures that are contributing to that. So take an example, One one of the things that we looked at early on was what percentage of cases were being dismissed for insufficient evidence. These are people who have been arrested by the police who have been processed in the system that the prosecutors after reviewing the evidence say, this case should not be in our system. Either the evidence is insufficient or because it's a low enough caliber that it's getting in the way of their armed carjackings and their homicides and their rapes. And, and when we looked at how big that number was, it was it was close to a quarter of their cases, wow. one in four cases. So, so that alone should shock anyone in any system. But what I found even more problematic when we started to look at the number was that on average, again, the typical case was taking over 220 days to be dismissed for one of these reasons. Wow. So those are people, some of them are held uh, in incarcerated, but, but all of them have pen cases, which impacts their ability to hold a job. Most of them are paying some sort of bond, which even if you're only paying five to 10%, comes out to millions and millions of dollars, yeah. that means, their drugs are being tested, their evidence is being tested, so it's gumming up that part of the system that we need to function for the cases that matter. All for cases they're gonna throw out because they don't have the evidence. And and, and to me that is a system problem. Yeah. Because because it's disproportionately affecting black people because they're being arrested at five times the rate. So yeah. so already that is that is having that impact. Um, and, and it's taking longer for that to happen. So so we began to think through how do we deal with this problem? We looked at Washington, DC. When I was a prosecutor, we used to screen every single night of the arrest. Um, and, and we got rid of a lot of bad cases that way. So so we we looked we looked at Washington, DC, which is where I started, and we were screening all of our cases from the start. And the process in South Carolina they didn't screen anything. And they, you know, case would come in, it would get assigned to a deputy, the deputy would then pass it down to an attorney who are trying cases, who are doing other things, and oftentimes those cases wouldn't get looked at. And so we set up a pilot program to figure out, all right, how would we do this differently? And we looked at the cases that were most likely to be dismissed, and we put a prosecutor to, to specifically focus on how do we identify bad cases, and immediately we saw the number of cases dismissed going up, and we saw it happening so much faster. And so, from that pilot, we're now expanding it to take on more police departments and more charges so that these cases that don't belong in the system get removed. And that's only part of the problem. A big part of the problem are cases that are perfectly viable, meaning the person violated the law, but they shouldn't be there. And in order to right. fix those problems, we need more alternatives. We need alternatives to get people out of the system so that yep. cases that are driven by addiction or poverty or homelessness. Get put in the right place. Um, they shouldn't right. be in the justice system if we want our justice system to actually serve <laughs> as as a deterrent, as a real check to improve public safety in our communities.
1: I'm, I'm all for uh,
0: alternatives to incarceration
1: and treating um, people with drug addiction or homelessness in ways that can actually be rehabilitative. And, um, you know, it's it's incredible just to hear how much impact your work has had. You know, you mentioned that it's, it's only in this sort of one area, whatever, but it, it it creates this immediate change in a lot of ways and it is over you know it's an example that you can set for others and hopefully implement these changes in other places as well.
0: Well I hope so I mean even look at a place like Charleston. Charleston is a small town. Yeah. Um I think the the population that we're talking about in Charleston and Berkeley counties is like six hundred thousand yeah. people. And and already we've helped them remove close to 2,000 cases from the system wow. in that one small place. If you if you consider that there are 2,300 prosecutors around the country and we got each of them to get rid of 2,000 cases, you can do the math. Um, I'm a lawyer, even though I'm a data guy, I, I have other people run the numbers for me, but it's the people. And, and, and one of the other things that we saw was like looking at specific charges that really impact incarceration rates and, and particularly disproportionate incarceration rates. And what can people do in terms of how they think about charging, in, in intake of cases? Like we could be doing things different in order to achieve what we want to achieve and reduce yeah. the harm that yeah. that we're currently causing.
1: From when you first started Justice Innovation Lab in in 2020, how has how has your vision for it evolved uh, to now?
0: I mean, what what we found as I started taking our findings from. Discussing it with other offices, I found out that most prosecutors' offices don't have a screening process like this. And so, you know, I, I get asked a lot of this by funders and by people who are interested in our work how do we scale this? Um, and I think we scale it in different ways. One of the things that I've learned is that doing a deep dive in an individual jurisdiction is profoundly helpful because we can do two things. We can really understand how the different parts of systems interact and develop solutions in line with people who can effectuate that change. Um, In doing so, we're seeing a shift in the culture, which is ultimately what we really have to change in, 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 in law enforcement. So much that I saw in terms of the conflicts as a prosecutor, when I would prosecute police misconduct stemmed from cultural, um, divisions of us and them, it's like law enforcement versus the community. And if we're actually going to do our job effectively, that cannot be the way we interact with the community. Because when we, when we treat the, the police as an other, those are also the victims of crime. Those are also the witnesses to our crimes. Those people that we need to solve it. And quite frankly, most of the solutions to tackling violent crime are not going to be inside our justice system. Our justice system be our last stop when everything else has failed. In the reality, it is our last stop, but but quite frankly, we need it to stop having all of those failures before us. Yeah. And and I think prosecutors, you know, as I said at the beginning, they're the most powerful people in the system. If we're going to influence the change for real, they have got to start stepping up and saying this is this is not tolerable anymore. And and I think so often when we hear about the progressive prosecutor movement, which I think is a bit misnomer, it's. It's, it's the wrong way to be talking about this. This These are people who, all of them, they want safe communities. They want to do it fair. They want to use our government power smart and fair and cost effectively. And so we can't make this a political issue between left and right, and Democrat, yeah. Republicans. We have to look at who are the people who want to change their community for the, for the better, who are willing to. To look at some numbers to figure out when we're not meeting our goals and our values, and then are really willing to put to put the power and influence of that position into fixing it. And I am what what I have seen is is through our successes in Justice Innovation Lab, there are a lot of those people, and so. You know, we wanna go deep in places who have novel problems. Right now we're about to start doing work in, in uh, Savannah, Georgia, doing some work in St. Paul, Minnesota. So as as different jurisdictions have heard about our work on screening and how to set that up, people are calling us up and saying, we wanna do that too. How do we do it? Um, and so we're, we're figuring out ways both to do our deep dives and training and in other ways so that people can take the learnings that we've had in Charleston and expand So we're, we're now working in, in four jurisdictions. We hope to be in eight in another year. Um, if funding permits, if we can continue to grow the team, that uh, we're investing in, in parts of our structure that will allow us to take on more and more jurisdictions, um, including how do you ingest and clean data faster? How do you work through the memorandum of understanding um, and agreements with, with county governments faster? because there are plenty of people who want to analyze this data, and there are plenty of people who want to help communities solve these problems. We, we just have to build up that infrastructure to be able to support more people. But as we as we found, uh, this is how you figure out what charges are causing the, the, the highest volume. These are the, how you understand your system better and, and system fixes that you can do. Um, that we're all taking to more and more jurisdictions. And so I imagine as, as we grow, we will do deep dives in jurisdictions where we think there's real opportunities to find solutions. So we're always looking for leaders who, who want a way forward, people who are willing to ask hard questions. And when they find answers that they don't like, actually want to do something about it. And so finding those partners, and we found it on um, in the full spectrum of politics from the right and the left, I, I don't think this should be a political issue. Uh, And then we help them solve their own problems. They have the answers. Um, Sometimes they just need help in a process. we do, we have a great workshops series where we work with line attorneys and help bring the, the, they can make better decisions of of where we find those solutions.
1: I really look forward to seeing how your work evolves and scales over time. And, um, you know, it's come up a lot in our conversation of how you've directly affected change, whether that's via some of these percentages that you've shared, as well as individuals. Um, Are there any sort of individual stories that really stand out for you where you kind of opened your eyes to the change that you can create?
0: Yeah, there was was one prosecutor we worked with who very early on, I I, I was sure that this person was discriminating again. It was clear that he viewed his case um against against different black and white defendants differently and i think what we see so often with criminality um in fear is is that people are unbiased uh, unconsciously more fearful of black defendants and, and the harm that can be caused and and so after after one of our workshops between cases that are getting dismissed for white people and black people why is it taking longer for black people to have cases dismissed and and this prosecutor raised his hand after participating in our workshops and says i think maybe i am i i implicitly believe that black people are more criminal in front of a group wow. of all of his other prosecutors coming to his own realization that wait maybe maybe i am making decisions not intentionally but but that i'm having this impact um, visual realization. Part of it was through numbers. Part of it was through exposure to impacted people. Part of it was creating a new mindset and new ways to talk about these things. You know, so often people talk about implicit bias and everyone gets really defensive. People get really defensive because no one wants to be called a racist. Like I, can, I can tell you that I've traveled all around the country. No one wants to be called a racist. And and so, so often when we're talking about disparities in criminal justice, law enforcement and, and prosecutors are immediately like, well, like it, I don't really care if you're a racist or not a racist. Like what I'm talking about is the racial disparities in the impact of your comes, because at the end of the day, that's what I think most people care about are people getting different outcomes. And and the answer is yes. People are getting vastly different outcomes, and and maybe you're intending that. Maybe you're not intending that. But let's assume right now that you're not intending that, because that's how we bring people along. Because we want to get people to fix the out- right. outcomes. Right. Yeah. Comes. There is plenty we can do to get better outcomes. Um. It's it's really. It- I'm
1: glad to hear that these prosecutors are going through your workshops. I'm excited for that to grow. And um you know, you mentioned when you your uh colleague when you were in Kosovo, uh that I think could apply to this question, but has there any been anyone throughout your career that you've uh considered a mentor?
0: For my career. If you would have asked me who my mentors were, I wouldn't have been able to name anyone. I would have told you, like, I know these senior people who teach me cool stuff and we share ideas and I teach them things and they teach me things, but like, I never would have used the word mentor. Now, when I look back, I was so for, I had so many mentors. I just thought of them as my old friends, you know, my old right. friends. Um, and I think that is really what an ideal mentorship relationship I, I've been blessed by smart people who taught me things at so many different stages in my life. You know from a guy named samuel jundi who was a palestinian peace activist when i lived in jerusalem to marcus um in kosovo to a great woman named mary howell in in, uh, in new orleans to a whole slew of people at the justice department these were smart people tackling hard problems who shape my worldview and understanding of how we can do these better. So I, I could go on for forever about people who, who I who I now consider mentors, who, who yeah. at the time I probably didn't.
1: No, I think that's a perspective that, that a lot of people share. Um, super interesting and, and obviously some great people you've been able to lean on over the years. And um, you know, in terms of, of balance and, and life in general and getting on some lighter topics, uh, you mentioned to me previously that you're in what you described as a dad garage band. I uh, would love to hear just a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, we're, we're, we, we go with middle-aged dad garage band, but you know, most, but, but recently we, we added one mom. So, so we're now music my whole, life. and, and um, but had never, hadn't been in a band since I was in fifth grade and a group of a group of guys that i hang out with um, and all play music so they're like let's get together and play and the best ways for for you of community with each other to build that human connection I, i'm not entirely sure what the science or the psychology behind it is but but when we sing together when we play music together it brings people together in ways that i don't think any other activity can do yeah. and so we started playing together and we sounded terrible um but we just kept playing because we enjoyed each other there's company we enjoyed doing it and one of the things that i was in the building at, at justice innovation lab for one because in a band you've got people doing different parts right like you got a drummer keeping keeping the beat you've got a bass player who helps fill out some of that Got kind of a lead guitarist i became the lead singer because i was the only one who knew the words <laughs> And and that's not a reason for anyone to become uh, the, the lead singer of a band. not the band you want, and you try to build <laughs> the band that you want, and you try to per, you, you try to maximize your strengths, and you try to protect against your weaknesses, because people don't think about music structurally in the same way that I do. I think about music, and so it was. All right, well, how do I explain the structure to the to the other guys so that we're all operating in the same way? Yeah. And then, how do we highlight um, our strengths um, on certain songs? How do we protect against those weaknesses? And as I think about our data team, like my data team has a lot of different strengths. I've got I've got people who are really into the backend engineering. I've got people who are really good at going down the rabbit holes. And then I have people who are really able to simplify it down. So we play to our strength, we protect against our weaknesses, and we keep trying to build the band that we want. That I agree. Music
1: has just this power to bring people together and to move people. That is kind of hard to explain. Um, and it's, you know, I love to meet people that have a lot of music in their lives.
0: Yeah, it's funny. One of the things that I realized, because I think part of, Part of what the value that I add to the band is, I'm I'm the front man. I'm the one who can get the auct up and kind of singing along and, and joining in um, far far better than any of my musical skills. And and one of the things that I realized, people want to sing. It's it's yeah. I think there is this people really love to sing. But when I realized that that most middle aged people can't words the songs, I was like, ah, right, we got to figure out a solution to this. So. I would. I had these big whiteboards with the choruses to to our you know our songs that we'll, people would want to sing to, and have our kids holding up these big whiteboards with the lyrics, and it's amazing. People, people would have came up to me after our first show and said, "Thank, you, thank you for the whiteboard. I really, I really appreciated that." And and so it's it's little things like that that just make that experience come alive for people.
1: What a good idea! I love that. And certainly it can be cathartic to sing especially in a group
0: for sure for sure
1: so if you'd like you can ask me a question
0: sure what what do you think are the most promising solutions in the justice reform space that you've seen as you've as you've traveled around the country and worked on these issues
1: thank you for that question i mean in terms of the most successful solutions that i've seen i mean i think that things that are driving us toward solutions are probably easier to pinpoint because the solutions that, that it's hard to say one thing is quote you know a solution for something but like the work that you're doing um the change that that's brought has been incredible to see um uh platforms like recidivis that are really bringing the data into focus um like you as well those have been um incredibly impactful um and then you know i i'm just i also do a lot of work in like reentry and i think just making sure that people have a Equal opportunities when they get out is really important. So I've been, you know, really impressed with Honest Jobs, um, and you know they work with uh, employers that are looking to provide second chance hiring. They cut down the rate for uh, people with records um, in terms of their time to get a job. I believe from an average of five months to about twenty seven days. Um, so those are things that I can really see directly impacting not only individuals, not only in this the systems themselves, but all of these people whose lives that it affects, you know, outside of the system as well.
0: Yeah, I had a great call with Clem the other day at Recidiviz, I'm a big fan of, of, of their work and, and hoping that, you know, <laughs> part of our conversation was like, I don't know how we're gonna partner yet.
1: If everything were to end tomorrow, the universe ends, what would you be most proud of?
0: What would I be most proud of? I mean, I think, I think the thing that I have been able to accomplish is to lift others to keep magnifying the change i came to a realization a number of years ago that i was only ever going to be able to accomplish so much Um, but the people that i influenced will be able to influence and, and and have even greater impact than that and and so i think i've been most proud of being able to to, I, I wonder if those people think of me as a mentor i hope they don't i hope they just think of me as a, as a senior older person friend that, that have given them some wisdom from time to time because because that's what we need more of right like I, I i want to help lift more and more people so that we can all make the world a better place like that's what it's going to take if if we're going to make stronger communities and, and and repair our world the idea of empowering others to
1: also improve the world is, is incredibly powerful and Um, it's been awesome to hear about how you've done that. And, um, you know, the big question that I ask every guest is this, uh, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate?
0: I think I would like people to be a little bit more empathetic if everyone was a little bit more empathetic to, to different viewpoints and they were willing to accept that there is more than one way to understand how our world functions, then I think we would be kinder. I think we would be less harmful and I think we would be more willing to open our minds to better solutions.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really incredible to think how much a little more empathy could affect our incredibly divided society.
0: I, I, I've met with people who on paper, I should hate. I've met with people whose, whose politics and, and views are so different and their upbringings are so different. And, and at the end of the day, if you, if you really sit down and put judgment aside temporarily, and, and this is coming from a former prosecutor, I felt like I was judgeable all the time. And one of my biggest reliefs is that's actually not what I, I don't have to do. That. I can meet people where they're at now in a way that I couldn't do when I was a prosecutor. And it's amazing how that can open one's mind to, to new possibilities and new solutions. So much of, of criminal justice system and prosecution is always backwards looking, right? We're always looking at what happened and we're trying to put some sort of judgment on it. And and that serves a purpose. I think it's a way to help us moderate our anger uh, in, in a way that's a little bit more effective, but it certainly doesn't help us build something better. It certainly doesn't yeah. help us really shape what our future looks like. To build our future, we have to kind of this more empathetic approach.
1: I really appreciate you taking the time today, Jared, to share your stories and your um, journey with us. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are very interested in what you're working on. How can people best support you and your impact?
0: Well, we are looking to grow. So surely we're always trying to raise more funds to support this work. Uh, we're a pretty lean organization almost all of our employee hours go to, to program and policy work um, but i think it's 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 also about like, figure out how you can support your community really at the heart of what we are trying to do is make communities stronger and people can can impact their own community by by trying to understand different voices different issues that arise in their own communities um, whether that's picking an interest in, in the next district attorney race, whether it's reaching out to your local homeless shelter to understand where their needs are and where that can be supported. I want people to start thinking about solutions, and, and people who are close to problems can find those solutions. So find a way that you can understand what's happening in your community and figure out a way to make it a little bit better. better. That's, that's really, if everyone approached the world that way, we would be in, in a lot better space.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. And I hope the listeners take that to heart and bring it with them. And again, you know, appreciate your time. And, um, you know, I know we, we had a lot of technical difficulties. Hopefully uh, my editors put some magic into this and the listeners aren't as aware of it as you and I are, but uh, I look forward to continuing our conversation and, uh, you know, helping advance your work however I can and um, look forward to talking again soon.
0: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for
1: listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.